Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. On the Playmakers Playbook this week, a great servant of Australian sport. Generations of footballers will attest to Sharon Flyhive's care for and commitment to their physical and mental health. She spent 20 years as the New South Wales Waratah's Chief Medical Officer. She has a thriving private practice in Sydney. She works with Australia's women's rugby union team, the Wallaroos. She has a great passion for women's sport. And Sharon recently joined the board of the International Rugby Union Players Association, where she shares her experience and knowledge with the world. This is the Playmakers Playbook, brought to you by BuildCorp, celebrating 30 years of continual learning and successful partnering. Hello, I'm Nick McArdle, host of the Playmakers Playbook. If you want to be a better leader in business, sport or the everyday, or if you just simply love a good story, this podcast is for you. I came to know Sharon Flyhive first through rugby and then on the sidelines at Junior Sport where our girls played soccer together. She was recently made a New South Wales Waratahs life member. She's recognised as a leader in sports medicine. She's come to understand, better than most I think, the challenges faced by athletes and coaches. She's endured the lows and was a critical ingredient in the highs across two decades with the Waratahs. 45 metres back. Bernard Foley. It's got the legs. It's got the legs. The distance. Over! Over! But there is time for the restart. That's it. They've got to put it into touch. It'll be... McKibben! A 19-year wait is over. It's third time lucky. Denied in 05, denied in 08 by the Crusaders, but victorious in 2014. The New South Wales Waratahs have got the monkey off their back. Great memories for Waratahs fans and great memories for our guest this week. Sharon Flahive, welcome to the Playmakers Playbook. <laughs> thank you, Nick, and thank you for having me. Some great times there, 2014. Um, that would have to be right up there with your highlights on a a long list of highlights throughout your career. You always remember moments. And I think I remember at that time, that kick, and then I turned and I saw Nathan Gray. And within minutes, I saw Al Baxter coming onto the field. And it's quite interesting. It was for me at that time, because it means something to everyone, but for me at that time, it wasn't just that moment. It was that that moment recognised everyone that had gone before for me so you know you run these you like highs and lows and you and you're in media and, and you you know what's said in media and 
for for me because I'm so I was so in the camp. You know, I I've always known how hard they train. I've always known those that get opportunity and those that don't. And it wasn't like any year they never tried hard enough. It's just that in any year there's so many different things that happen and there's only one winner. And it was at that moment that I saw the tears in Nathan's eyes and then Al Baxter it felt like we all had credibility. It wasn't just the team on the day. It was just all of a sudden the Waratahs had credibility. Yeah, you are so right. And it was, you know, a great story at that time. And just that that great positivity around the game made all the difference. And and for those of us now, I guess, upon reflection, we can see what, what could be done, um, you know, if there was that belief in, in the game now that existed in that moment uh, six years ago. When, when you talk about that, because we, we talk about what's happening in rugby at the moment, I, after the end of the season last year, I went across to the World Cup and I was involved with World Rugby. They have a medical commission conference and and there they had, well, it's 120 countries in the world that play rugby and they had representatives from 68 countries, I think. I think I sat down and had breakfast from four different people from four African nature, nations that play rugby. And... It was, again, it was that whole feeling of like, this is a great game. And, you know, sometimes it might not be right for you in your country at that time, but it's still a game that female or male, whoever you are, whatever your involvement in rugby, whether it be in administration or as a player, you can go pretty much anywhere in the world and rock up to the local rugby club. And it's special like that. Yeah, that's uh, something special about the culture of the game. There's no doubt about it. Um, you finished up last year uh, after 20 years with the Waratahs, their longest-serving staff member. Did you actually run the calculator over how many games you attended, how many how many caps you achieved? <laughs> no, I can remember 50, and then I can remember 100. I think um, I think it was well over um, four, 300 and something. There was certainly um, there were a number of Waratahs that achieved caps while I was there. I think that was well over 200 or 290 or something. And as you say, there's a number of members of staff and a lot of players that some know and some don't know. So over that time, um, they become your family, I guess. And and I spoke to uh, to one of the players who was there during that time, Brendan Cannon. I was talking to him and he was talking about the fact that you were like a surrogate mum for so many players. Did it, did it feel like that? Did it feel like they were family, that the organisation was family? I like to think I was a bit more of a sister at the start, but I definitely, <laughs> my brother laughs at me and he goes, so was that when you were the sister or when you were the mother? Like, which... <laughs> um, what's quite interesting is, and Brendan, it's interesting to talk about Brendan because in 2001, Holly, who you know, was one, and that was my second year with the, Waratahs and at that time Brendan was playing and he was very uh, protective um, of me because I was still looking after them during that time well into the time and didn't have much time off when Holly was actually born Um, but it was her pretty much her lifetime so when I finished um, she was yeah coming up to 18 and she was born while I while I started there so um, one day I sat down at dinner and said to to Holly and Mark, I said, you know, I think, you know, this this will be my last 
last season. And, you know, in, in jest, Holly said, I've waited my whole life to be the same age as the players. And I said, that's a pretty good time for me to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Avoid that danger. Good decision. <laughs> so over the time, when you when you look back, and I'm sure you have um, missed it, so therefore you've thought about it a lot over, over the last, um, well, almost a year. What was the best part of the job? What, did you, what have you missed more than anything? Oh, well, firstly, as, as a doctor, I think that we get educated to be decision makers and to to help people um, get better. I think you can be you you work on your own most of the time, and I think one of the things about about being in a team situation like that is that you learn better skills in in working in a team and realizing that you are only one part of that team, and so you need to work in. Um, with the system um, so I think I, I learned better um, sort of management skills and, and better team skills you miss that feeling I think one of the things you get is that when you're not in an elite team life can kind of roll a little bit more um, and you're annoyed when you're late to work or you're annoyed when you miss out on that park but um, with the player, their life is so much higher and lower. And you get the opportunity when you're involved with the team to see a little bit of that and experience that ride with them somewhat. Um, and that's like extremely exciting, but also at times, you know, extremely disappointing. I think you choose to be involved in that stress, like to make that stressful decision um, I think I think you choose to be there. You know, it's high intensity. It's like anyone that they choose, whether they climb mountains or whatever they choose to do. There's something about that 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 you like. And I think the other thing that you have to enjoy about sport is that it is sport, and by nature, most of the people that are involved, they love a game and they love humour. So it's full of fun. <laughs> Most of the time. Have you found yourself the victim on, on occasions or have you been the, the, the innocent bystander, luckily? <laughs> I've had um, hair colour um, capsules put in the taps in a hotel um, because at the time I'd changed my hair colour. So they wanted to make me feel like my hair colour was actually being washed out of my hair. <laughs> Silly me, we're in New Zealand and I just thought it was rust in the taps. Um <laughs> Peter Hewitt always used to have this game where he always used to kind of nip at my ankles and like yelp like a dog, like as he kind of, you know, it's just one thing after the other. It's just funny all the time. And some of the things you've seen, things that weren't necessarily meant to be funny. I did read a story about, I don't know whether you can name him or not, but there was a player and and not so long ago, as I understand it, who accidentally swallowed both of his diamond earrings. Is that is that correct? <laughs> That, that is correct. <laughs> he used to store them in his Ventolin puffer. And uh, and then they sat down from eating again. So he was ready. Earrings went straight into Ventolin puffer. Or he took his puffs, earrings went in. And then they sat down again and talked. And so he took another puff before he went out to puff with the Ventolin inhaler before he went out on onto the field. And at that same time, he exactly as you say, he inhaled both of the diamond earring so we were he was able to cough one up pretty quickly and the other one he couldn't get up so we were you know, off to the hospital to try and 
we did an x-ray to find that by that stage it was actually in his stomach this was three or four hours later um so the solution obviously was that it at some stage was going to um, work its way through his system and whether it be one day two days or three days later he could probably uh, look look for that diamond earring earring it's my understanding he never found the diamond earring <laughs> didn't look hard enough <laughs> <laughs> um over the over the stretch you, you joined the waratahs in in 99 um, and even that even before that rather you were involved in sport so all of that makes you more than qualified to answer this question. What makes a great leader? It's a really good question. As you know, there's many, many styles of leadership. I don't mind what, whatever style it is, but the greatest leaders have the ability to be able to get people to do things. I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll share some examples with you because over the years, I think I've seen a number of coaches, but I've also seen other leaders in my work and in every aspect. And I've thought about this a bit and um, I'll start with, say, someone like um, Ewan McKenzie. He had the ability to, he thought a lot about how to motivate people and how to get the players to do things. And there's an effect called the Hawthorne effect, which is where in, in, a, in an office, in a factory, they told them that they were going to increase in the, increase the lighting because that increased the productivity. So it was just the fact that these people believed something was being done for them. And Ewan used this on a number of occasions. One time was when we hadn't beaten the Brumbies ever in Canberra. And he said to the team, you know, I know what happens. We go down to Canberra. No one likes going down there. They have terrible coffee. You know, we get in there as late as we can. And then we get out there, get out of there as quick as we can. We're going to completely reverse that. We're driving the bus down there with Waratahs written all over it. We're going to go down and we're going to sit in their cafes and we're going to drink their coffee and the Waratahs are coming to Canberra and we are going to beat them. And all of a sudden he gave everyone a plan and they all jumped on board the bus and we we're all we we're all in for the plan. He did the same thing maybe a year later when we were going to Johannesburg and normally you'd go early and he did all this research through AFL. I think it was about traveling late and he made us all get this plan where, how we, how we would go late. So it was literally like we went, I think the day, the two days before arriving one day before to sort of storm the lions and played the lions in Johannesburg and beat them. And again, it's that ability to, get people on board, get people on the same plan. And then you have someone like Bob Dwyer, who he was very much, I always think of him with that, like the Robert the Bruce type approach, where it's like, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And there are a number of times where he would walk in. And I remember one, clearly, we were playing the Highlanders. And he walked into the room and he said, you know, I've been thinking about this. And he just, I just don't know if we've got it. And he showed an element of vulnerability, which I think is really important. But he says, like, I wonder what, I just don't know if we have the ability to go out there and give absolutely everything and come off the field knowing that we could have failed. And again, Duncan McRae was the 5'8 at that time. We were at the Sydney um, Football Stadium and they used to have these tours of people that would come and they would replay the national anthem and these tourists would come down and they'd get to walk onto the 
football stadium. And right at that time, the Australian national anthem played for these tourists coming down the tunnel. <laughs> and all of us thought that Bob had staged it. But of course, he hadn't. But it actually dovetailed quite nicely into this whole speech about giving everything you can possibly give. And, you know, again, that was that same thing that he he showed vulnerability, like that ability to actually go, like, I don't know if we've got it. And it brought everyone to the same same sort of sort of place. And then you get someone like Michael Checker, like Michael Checker, you know, he had a job to do. And that was that 2014, like, and he came in and he had the ability to get the job done. And he, again, his motivation is, is, is incredible. Um, he, he, Arnold Palmer's the golfer they call like the man of the people. Michael Checker walked into the, to the, um, the Waratah Stadium there. And we had a fair trap where it's all the chairs are set up in lines and he, everyone with no, no one had met him and he walks in and he said, can everyone grab a chair? And he said, I don't know if this is how you set it up normally, but this is not how I work. I need a big circle. And so all of a sudden we're in this big circle. And there'd always been this issue between like downstairs and upstairs. And this is only one of the examples of many that I would say Michael's extreme motivationalist. And so we all sat down and he said, there'd always been a problem between uh, management and commercial and marketing who were always upstairs and playing staff for downstairs. And he said, I've been through the place overnight over the weekend and you'll find that there are names everywhere all the people in upstairs all their names are there what position they're doing and the same downstairs and so what i want you to do is because we're all on we're all in the same game together here so when you come in you drop off your pack you go upstairs and you find two people and you shake hands with them and say good morning you've got their names there and then you go back downstairs and that was the role and just basically just made everyone the same. And it was, a, it was, it was a really simple strategy, but all of a sudden there was no, there was no barrier between upstairs and downstairs. And he just broke it down in, in a minute. And you know, that again, that was a great example of how he had that, he did the same thing, um, showing vulnerability when we, when we'd lose a game and he'd sit down and just go, you know, I, I don't know if it's me. Like, is it me? And then, again, it's that that communication and vulnerability that gets the team all on the same page. And if you can do that, then you make ordinary men do extraordinary things. And that that's what you have to do to win that competition. Interesting listening to some of that. It's not rocket science, is it? A lot of that stuff is is just an understanding of human nature. Would that be fair? Very much so. And... I mean, communication is really important. You, you listen to Jacinda Ardern. I think she's got a great ability to, she shows vulnerability and she also says what you're thinking. If you can communicate with your players such that they feel like they want to be with you, do whatever it takes for you, and that you have an understanding of them, then they will do those extraordinary things. Things that you've learned... Uh, from the footballing side of things, have you managed or uh, tried to implement them in your business life? I certainly do. I certainly use that um, example with with the patient where it might be, 
you know, I, this is what I might do with a professional player. Um, this is how we manage a, a professional player. I think that all that communication and that vulnerability, I think that's important in patient communications because you don't always know the answers. Mm. And it's the same. It's like, I, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I can try and find out. And then we, we can talk about that or we can have more investigations or, again, it's that same quality of trying to say, you know, we're in this together. You know, we hear that all the time with this pandemic pandemic don't we and it becomes a bit glib I mean that's we're in this together and people start to you know there have been examples I'll give you another example where there's a difference between mission statements and ethos so there's we talk about culture if you talk about culture too much people almost like oh culture you know they roll their eyes but you have a mission statement one year where you had this word candor and I think it's about sort of truth and honesty and it ended up being because you don't have such a great year, it ends up being like thrown around like a rugby ball. No one really cares about the word and indicates everything which is not good or good about the organisation. Yet if I use an example with, say, uh, my daughter's school, the headmistress there, Brani Scott, she used one word and that word was grit. And if you cultivate that ethos and you communicate it, right throughout the whole system, it becomes extremely powerful. And so it doesn't become a throwaway word like candle became, but it comes something that the whole school can rally around or the whole team can rally around if it's used well. So when they have those plans, when they come up with those words or themes for the year, it's really, really important. And I've come off subject now, come off topic now, Nick, because we were actually talking about my workplace, but, the, the theme has to start at the start of the season and you you have to take it all the way through. And even when you fall over as you're going all the way through, you somehow have to say, well, that how did that not relate to what we were going to do? And you have to communicate it. But I think you have to communicate it in a vulnerable way because we've all fallen over together. Back to what you're asking about my workplace, I suppose the three strategies that I use in my workplace, uh, which I think I've taken from sport, is that um, we want a, a centre of excellence, which I hope we've created. Um, we we want a uh, a nice place for nice people, which is I think that comes the Swans call that the no dickhead policy. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is it's really a one stop shop, and I know you've been there, so that's the approach there. So those are probably my business principles that I've taken from. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Every year in football, there'll be one or two players who you know spend more time in rehab than they do playing, and you are closely involved with with those individuals. Have you had to be uh, part psychologist, part counselor over the years? Um, because I imagine that gets gets difficult. You have to, in a sense, lead them through that process. 
There's so many stories there. It's very difficult for an athlete to be injured um, because you've removed their strength, their power, and you've removed their ability to be able to work. And the hardest thing is the indecision, the inability for them to know when they're going to be back on the field. So we've always tried to be as strong as we can around when their return is going to be. But that's not always easy because sometimes it's not known. We always hear about the injuries that go on and on and then they re-injure because every time they injure, they have the, the risk that they will re-injure because injury follows injury. The psychology goes from, you know, anything from the fact that that one injury means that they may not play that whole season that they may not re-sign a contract, that that might be the last injury and they may need to retire. So there's definitely a lot of psychology in that side of things. And I always find that the hardest thing when when I when I look at the media and, and you, you read the media and I think no one, it's hard to know. The backstories don't really make the news. You know, it's like every year we do medicals on you know, often 40 players. And in the news, you only read about maybe five of them. And and some of them don't even make the starting team, yet they give their all to be there at the start. And it might be injury, or it might not be selection. But sometimes the injury is, it's that one injury in the trial that means they never make that first 23, which means they never get the opportunity all season. And you have to try and keep them up to say, you know, to try and explain to them, you know, your moment might be next week. You've got to keep it up enough that someone might be injured. And it's not always that easy to see that when you're in your 20s. Exactly. And I must, you know, I'll put my hand up that I, over the years, you know, I've, I've been in a situation where, you know, I've, I've been on air and, and spoken about people and, you know, speculated. and And as you get closer to players and get to know them a little bit better and you start finding out you know maybe what's going on in their life or you know what's going on outside of football and and you stop and you think to yourself you know I I didn't know that clearly this this person's got a bit going on and and I admit I felt guilty at at times Um, there is a there is a, a, a need, I think, for journos to have a bit more empathy to uh, to understand what's going on in a player's life sometimes before making judgment. It's it's too easy to judge from a distance. I think I've learned a few lessons along the way there too. You know, going into sport and exercise medicine and going into team sport, you're trying to get the player onto the field and and be safe and 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 look after them, but. You know, I know that in my early days, I could have made decisions where I'm, I may have put a player on the field, you know, maybe just a little early, thinking that if the player gets on the field, the people will recognise that he's doing his best to get out there. And if he doesn't have the greatest of games, then it's because of injury. And then realising down the track that they never see that. No. And so if they have a bad game, it's not he was playing with injury and therefore it's okay it was he had a bad game and i think i learned learned that along along the way and i guess that discussion leads on in a way to mental health which is something that you have a great passion 
about. Um, and now, I guess, you know, you have the opportunity to influence that through your role with the International Rugby Players Association. It's um, it's it's changed a lot. I think the, it, there's been a generational change. Certainly, when I started, and I've talked to a lot of the other codes, we didn't have really any involvement of psychologists, and and that's cha- that's changed significantly. I mean, the AFL teams, a lot of them have a psychiatrist and a psychologist involved. That's changed over over the last uh, twenty years. But and I don't know whether that's a society. Thing. I think it's a component society. I think it's a reflection on society. Um, but their life is so much more visual or visible to people that it is so much harder. So they go from, you know, rooster to feather duster and everyone knows about it. And and that's a that that's a difficult journey for them. And the other is injury to have career removed because of injury i think that's in another really difficult side and can you imagine when we talk about mental health can you imagine what the players are going through now through this pandemic where i don't know you've got teams in victorian teams now being placed into queensland and you know all for the name of sport and they're removed from all their support structures all their family you know and back when i started there was definitely a a a sort of a you know get on with it harden up that kind of approach the retirement probably piece is the the biggest piece that i've i've noticed in my time i mean we're all aware of of the struggles of 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 all both outside of sport and inside of sport but I think the retirement piece is, is quite a difficult piece because if you take super rugby as an example, professional sport as such is the one area where at about the age when you are probably often just married or just have your first child, you might have a mortgage, um, then that is the time when you retire. So you have to change careers. And my understanding is on average, a super rugby player Will have a drop in their income of between fifty and a hundred thousand dollars, and and they're having to to also cope with the mental side of no longer being that person. So change of career, decrease, and so that I think, you know, most of the players that I've spoken to, and some some are luckier than others. Obviously, it's not the same story for everyone, but you know, they they have a really tough first five years out of sport. So you clearly want to lead in that area, as I mentioned. You, you know, you roll on the board of the IRPA now. Um, yeah. What What can you do? How can you influence that transition piece better, and the and the mental health piece better? What discussions are being had there? Oh, I think I think we can screen better for it. Um, I think I think we can have better programs in place. I think we can um, make sure that the players are. Uh, well provided for um, as far as supports after after sport um, and also that they have a voice um, and I think that that's an important piece of the puzzle is that they actually have a, have a voice within decisions that are made around sport I mean this there's, there's obviously the commercial component 
there's the economic component and there's the game, but I think the player's voice is important. You actually touched on that sort of shipping players out of Victoria in particular and and the mental health side of, of that. Is it being handled okay? Do you have concerns about uh, how the players are being treated, not just in rugby but, but in other codes as well? Um, I think that um, every, certainly from a medical perspective, perspective anyone I know that's involved in teams that's probably the first thing they're talking about so I think it's very present in everyone's minds um, you know whether you can change it whether you, you can modify it but can, you can certainly be aware of it and I think everyone's very aware of it um, when it comes to I don't what might be happening worldwide is where we need to be careful it's just uh, the catch-up games I think that's where everyone is trying to make up for what hasn't hasn't gone before and we need to recognize that you know sport is perishable you know it's like apples and pears so what we haven't had we're not going to get back Mm. so i don't think you have a catch-up piece and so that's where again i think the players need to be protected from that you know i will try and you know play midweek games you know that sort of thing and i certainly think there's questions over that happening elsewhere. It's certainly not happening here. And, you know, I think the AFL and NRL and, and Rugby Union Australia and New Zealand, New Zealand's been fantastic around looking after the player welfare side, um, not, you know, making sure that they've had a good preparation time. You know, once it wasn't just when we get ready, they're going to go into training. They had a minimum of four weeks of good training in Rugby Union. They hadn't longer than that in the Super Rugby. Um, and and sort of you know no pressure on they're looking after the players you know extremely well there's not a lot of examples around there but certainly a lot of people talk about that lockout in, in NFL I think in 2011 where I think they had like 11 Achilles tendon ruptures within a very short period of time but that was a good example where the risk of injury is so much higher because of a patch of training that was not normal for them it's an exact science now whereas you know mm. when you probably started at the tars in 99 the, there wouldn't <laughs> have been that there wouldn't have been that level of understanding it just goes to show just in that little piece how far we've come and you're also involved i really want to talk about this in the minerva uh network i hope i've said that correctly which is yeah. focused on women in sport um can you tell us a bit about that because i only recently found out about it it probably hasn't got the profile it really should have but it's a it's a wonderful initiative it is it is it's it's an incredible um organization you've probably seen the name sam moston and christine mclaughlin um i think through their work they realized that there wasn't a lot of profile for women in sport and and we all know that men have done networking very well for a long period of time, but we have the reserves within um, within all aspects of business now that women can do that networking well. And it's been an organisation that's been set up to, to mentor and provide support for um, female athletes, whether that, you know, it can be as simple as running like a, a webinar on mental health and or it can be, um, you know, pre-COVID, it was workshops on, you know, how to how to run with social media, like those sort of components that a lot of um, women in sport weren't provided with to the same to the same level. Like, 
it's been like, you know, as you know yourself, it's been like a, almost an exponent, exponential growth um, in in the world, really, in women's sport the last two years. Um, so I, th- I think that's that's it's really exciting. I'm, I, I personally, I um, mentor Hannah Buckling, who so we we were put together because Hannah's a water polo player for Australia, but amazing amazing woman. She's also a medical student, so she's still managing to carry out her medical studies while she's been playing water polo wow. for Australia. So. Um, the connection was obviously made because you know I'm I'm medical and that's what so I, I'm obviously able to provide her with some guidance but perhaps hopefully also opportunity as she moves through her journey. So there's a range of female athletes who who have that opportunity to be partnered with with a mentor and I guess that's just part of the program as you say. Yes, yeah. So with. Um, uh, either business or whatever their interest is, and then um, um, uh, they'll get speakers along. Even and that might be see Phil Kearns is involved with that as well, and you know his uh, daughter is an elite athlete herself, and uh, providing support, mentoring, and opportunity. It's a it's a great initiative. Um, just before we go, uh, I am going to read through just a, a quick pricey of your CV. Obviously, we've talked about the TARS and, and Minerva and, and what you're doing with the International Rugby Players Association, which, of course, has interface with world rugby as well. Just on the female rugby, I'm now looking after the Wallaroos. The Wallaroos, well. exactly. Yes. Exactly, which is, which is kind of returning um, to your roots, is. really, isn't it? Because you started in women's rugby all those years ago. Yeah, that's exactly right. They were called the New Zealand women's rugby team then, uh, but they've subsequently been called the Black Ferns. So it's it's a nice circle. Exactly. Now, over the stretch, though, it's been a it's been a, a remarkable list of things that you've dabbled in. You were uh, the medical consultant for a time for Cirque du Soleil when they were in Sydney, which is which is very interesting. Uh, you, you've worked obviously at the, the World Cup. Um, you conducted research on athletes injured at the Sydney Olympics, which would have been fascinating in itself. You've worked on television series, triathlon events, uh, and as you say, with, with now the, the team that is known as the Black Ferns. Um, also dabbled in a little bit of rugby league and, and in cricket as well. So that begs the question, what is there left? What do you want to do? <laughs> now, are you just going to settle back into private practice and, and dabble with these things on the side or have you got big plans? No, I don't. I, I don't think so. I mean, the the opportunity with the international rugby players is is um, great to be able to still affect player welfare. Um, the sport and exercise, um, our college, um, to be involved in the training of the registrars. So the young registrars coming through that want to do the same thing. Like I, I love that teaching, um, and. I and, I and I do really in, enjoy teaching like I, I think I love that because I used to always love the stories from those that came before like my mentors were always well respected in their journey and I just wanted to follow follow theirs um, and I don't know I think there'll always be more more challenges definitely I, I love what I do like I've I've had a very fortunate journey I've I've um, worked hard to stay 
stay there, to stay to stay present, to stay relevant. Um, to I, I always think you always have to have a healthy discontent for the present, and that will keep you kind of yearning to keep achieving more. Yeah, there's some good advice. Thanks so much for joining us today. I wanted it would have been a lot of people I think have have seen this woman run out onto the field when players are are injured for for 20 years for for the Waratahs wearing a, a Tars <laughs> tracksuit and a and a bib. Um, and I just wanted people to get to know you a little bit better. So Sharon Flahive, thank you for joining us on the Playmakers Playbook. Thank you so much, Nick. Always good to chat to you. My guest this week on the Playmakers Playbook, Sharon Flahive, and that's good advice, isn't it? Always have a healthy discontent for the present. The Playmakers Playbook is brought to you by BuildCorp, where great teams are built on shared values. It's available wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Deezer. Make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And as always, if you like what you've heard today, give us a five-star rating or simply tell a friend. I look forward to your company next week on the Playmakers Playbook. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.